especially helpful to have that opening from the view as we work down through it. But let's just pray again and ask for God's help as we come to the good word. Father, we pray that in this moment you would just settle our hearts. We pray, Father, that you would work powerfully through your word as the Holy Spirit illuminates and shines the light of truth into our hearts and minds. Be at work. We ask that you would give us understanding in our minds of the truth of the gospel but more that you would through that understanding awaken our affections our hearts that we wouldn't just see <coughs> that the gospel is good and that Christ is good but that we would actually taste the goodness itself so come and meet us and help us to see and understand and hear what you want us to hear this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was younger, growing up in Callum, I attended the local boys' brigade company. I didn't really know it at the time. But Calvin and Beely were well known to be very good at something called the drill. This was essentially marching. There was a leader who directed the whole thing, and those following were to align themselves with the leader and do all they could to keep in step with him. When we were all in step, and the line, everything went well. If you fell out of line and out of step, the whole thing got pretty messy, pretty fast, and the poor guy in front of you got his heels stamped on repeatedly. Now I begin with this little childhood reflection because it's a helpful illustration of the central truth of this morning's passage. And that central truth is this. The Christian life is a life where we should seek to keep our conduct, that is, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, aligned with and in step with the gospel. The Christian life is a life where we should seek to keep our conduct in step with the gospel. The gospel is not just a message by which we are saved. The message, the gospel is a message by which we live. Now so far in our study through this letter, we've seen Paul emphasizing to the Galatians that the gospel is a message by which we are saved. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that the gospel what is it? It's a good news announcement that Christ died for our sins. Last week we considered the event of the gospel, the historic death and resurrection of Jesus, and what that event accomplished. Forgiveness of sins. Credited righteousness. 
Sinners are reconciled to God in Christ. We have a fresh new start. These are gospel truths that we are to receive, believe and cherish. We rest in the finished work of Christ to make us right with God. And as we said a couple of weeks back, there's, you don't need to bolt anything onto that. Christ is enough to make us right with God. But this week in our passage, we're going to see that embracing these gospel truths, following Jesus Christ, has profound implications for our lives. This lesson flows out of an issue that arose in Paul's home church in a place called Antioch. That's the setting of our passage this morning. We're going to see that Paul observed that his fellow apostle Peter was living in a way that was out of step with the gospel. That is the language that the Apostle Paul uses in verse 14. I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And this leads to the Apostle Paul publicly confronting Peter, saying that he's out of line. Though this confrontation is pretty intense, there is much for us to learn from how seriously the Apostle Paul took not only the importance of getting gospel truth right, but how important he took getting the gospel-shaped life right. Because Paul here does not rebuke Peter for a problem with his teaching, but a problem with his conduct. Now the narrative account is pretty straightforward. What we get is Peter's out-of-step conduct outlined. That's the first thing we'll see. And then second, we will see Paul's response explained. And that's going to be our outline for this morning. Peter's out-of-step conduct outlined, Paul's response explained. Very simple. Now let's look at Peter's out-of-step conduct, first of all, in verses 11 to 14. Now, Last time, we saw in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, that the Jerusalem apostles were in full agreement with the gospel that Paul was preaching. There were opponents to Paul in the Galatian region who were saying, sure, Paul's gospel, it doesn't even line up with what Peter and James and those guys preach. And last week, we saw Paul defending himself and sharing that the Jerusalem apostles, they absolutely agreed with the gospel that Paul was preaching. Verse 6 of chapter 2, Paul said they added nothing to the gospel I was preaching. Faith in Christ's work is enough to save us from sin and make us right with God. In verse 9, Paul said these pillars of the church in Jerusalem gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They were all totally united. So when we read verse 11, of chapter 2, when Cephas, that's a um, great name for Peter, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That verse is supposed to come as a real shock. When Peter visits Antioch, Paul opposes him to his face 
over Peter's ungospel-like conduct. Now what led to this confrontation? What was wrong with Peter's conduct? Well, let's think about it. We'll study Peter's conduct here and ask what he did, why he did it, and what are the implications of that? What Peter did, first of all. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now you get the significance of what's going on here. It might be helpful for us to get a bit of Peter's backstory. Peter was raised a Jew under the authority of the Old Testament Mosaic Law. Within that law, there were a group of laws known as the Clean Laws. These laws consisted of a complicated set of rituals and regulations for worshippers of God to observe in order to be ceremonially clean or acceptable to God in worship. You had to eat only certain foods, you had to wash in certain ways, all to be outwardly clean so that you'd never be defiled and then not be able to worship God. Under the Mosaic Law, worshippers could not draw near to God if they ate these unclean foods, if they touched dead things, or even if they came into contact with someone else who was ceremonially unclean. Now that made meal times for Jews fairly sacred. It separated Jewish people out from those who were non-Jewish, those referred to as Gentiles. You remember the scandal, for example, caused by Jesus when he was willing to dine with tax collectors and sinners. These laws in the Old Testament were teaching a simple message. God's people have to be properly cleansed to draw near to him in worship. These Old Testament laws were like signposts or foreshadowings of Jesus, the ultimate saviour who could cleanse us from sin and make us acceptable to God in worship. When Jesus came, he explained this and he said that the ceremonial clean food laws, they're not will ultimately make you clean or unclean. They were just a signpost that were pointing to a greater reality. Jesus said it is sin in our hearts that makes us unclean. And it is the heart that needs to be cleansed from sin. And Jesus was explaining that that is what he came to do. So in Mark 7, 19, we read that after this teaching, Jesus declared all foods were clean. And the purpose of the clean laws had been fulfilled and were no longer in force. That meant that Jews like Peter could go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel and enter into full fellowship with them. One new people was created. A people fully united in Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 10, we get an account of Peter doing this. He went into the home of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. He preached the gospel. Cornelius and his family became Christians. Peter stayed with them, ate with them, 
had fellowship with them. Where once he thought it was absolutely unthinkable to eat with Gentile unclean sinners. He was afraid that their uncleanness would rub off on him in some way. Now all of those barriers were torn down through Jesus Christ. And so Paul tells us back in our passage in verse 12. That when Peter first came to Antioch, he did the same. He was happy to sit down and enjoy fellowship with the Gentile believers there. He would eat with them. He would hang out with them. No separation between Jews and Gentiles. They would all gather around the Lord's table together. They would all be one family united in Christ. He did that until a group of people arrived to Antioch from Jerusalem. This group claimed to have come from James, although James later denies this in Acts chapter 15, 24. This was a conservative group of believers from a Jewish background who could not let go of some of their old legalistic religious traditions. They couldn't get over the idea that even if as Jews they were made righteous in Christ, there's no way we could ever sit down with Gentiles and eat because, nah, they're just still unclean. We're told in Acts 15 verse 1 that this group was preaching that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They were also teaching that it was inappropriate for circumcised Jewish believers have table fellowship with uncircumcised Gentile believers. They just couldn't let go of their old ways, even if Jesus said they could. Their traditions cancelled out the word of Christ. When this group, this hyper-conservative group of Jewish background believers, so-called believers, when they arrived on the scene in Antioch, Peter felt pretty conscious of what they were thinking. And so he withdrew from eating with the Gentiles and separated himself from having fellowship with them. That's what Peter did. Now why did he do this? Did Peter become convinced that this Jewish group, that their version of the gospel was correct? They were saying, yes, you have to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but that's not enough to save you. You also have to become more Jewish, like us. You have to be circumcised. You have to withdraw from having fellowship with non-Jews in some way. And you have to obey the traditions and customs of the Old Testament. If you do all that, then you'll be good. Did Peter become convinced that their version of the gospel was correct? This cannot be the case. He had been taught explicitly by Jesus that those old divisions between Jew and Gentile had been torn down through what Christ came into the world to accomplish through his death and resurrection. Why did Peter withdraw from the Gentiles who were told at the end of verse 12? He feared the circumcision party. And that was a shorthand name for this group of ultra-conservative 
uh, so-called Christians from a Jewish background. This retreat from Peter from the Gentiles was not prompted by any theological conviction. It came from Peter fearing what a small pressure group thought about him. Now we know what this is. We call this today peer pressure. Peter so wanted to be well thought of by this conservative group that he changed his conduct in front of them so that he'd be accepted by them. Pressure from people he was worried about, he was worried about what they thought of him. And so when they weren't there, he would act one way. Oh, I'm free, I can hang out with Gentiles. But when they were there, he's like, oh, I'm so worried about that they're not going to think that I'm hyper-conservative, orthodox, evangelical. I'm so worried about what they think that I'm just going to change my behaviour now that they're here. Paul summarizes this with one word in verse 13, hypocrisy. Acting one way with one group and then being a totally different person when another group is around. This is not authentic gospel living. I wonder, have you ever done this? It's so easy to do. It is so easy to alter our behaviour because we're afraid of what people think of us. And so instead of living the gospel out loud and clear, we cloud the gospel with conduct that is not aligned with the gospel. Ask this question of yourself. Are there groups of people in my life that I, I fear what they think of me and so I alter my conduct in front of them? It could be your family, it could be colleagues, it could be just people around you generally in your life, your neighbours or whoever. Now, I'm not speaking of being wise and careful as we communicate our faith. We all have to do this with our families, with our friends, with our colleagues. You don't always just go in all guns blazing with the gospel every day at work. We're wise, we're patient, we're gentle, we have respect. We're playing a long game in some instances, especially with our families. We have to be wise in our conduct, absolutely. But there's being wise and careful as we communicate our faith, and then there's just being afraid of what people think of us, and therefore we alter our conduct. Ask yourself this question. Is my conduct in front of the different groups in my life? Is my conduct lining up with the gospel? Or am I altering my behaviour depending on the group that is around me? So that's what Peter did. That's why he did it. Pure fear about what people thought of him. Now let's think of the implications of Peter's out-of-step conduct. There's a term out there in the social media world today for those that have a big following. They're referred to as influencers. You've heard this. Um, Peter was big time an influencer. First implication of Peter's out-of-step conduct. He was leading other people astray. Verse 13. The rest of the Jews followed him and acted hypocritically along with him 
so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. The second implication of Peter's actions was, flowing from this, he was creating two tears in the church at Antioch. Think of what his actions would have communicated to the Gentiles. By Peter and the Jews separating out from the non-Jews, the Gentiles, they were essentially looking down at the Gentiles and saying, you're not truly and fully made clean in Christ. You're still in some way morally tainted, and you must Judaize, that is, get circumcised, and obey the Old Testament clean laws to remove that remaining pollution. Only then, when you've added those things to Christ, will you be able to come and have fellowship with us. The Gospel says to the Gentiles, you are fully clean, fully right with God, on the basis of faith in Christ alone. You don't need anything else to become more acceptable to God. But Peter's actions were out of step with that gospel. And in verse 14, when Paul saw the actions of Peter and those following him were not in step with the truth of the gospel, Paul recognizes it's time to book Peter in for a wheel realignment. You ever done that? A mechanic get to go, maybe you've driven over a pothole, or your wife has driven over a pothole. <laughs> you have to go and get your steering realigned. Well, that's what Peter needs. Realignment. And that's what we need when our conduct gets out of line with the gospel. We need realignment. And the way Paul decides to realign Peter is first through confrontation, and second through gospel explanation. Let's think of Paul's response now to Peter's out-of-step conduct. First, verse 11, we saw Paul explaining that when he saw Peter acting this way, he opposed him to his face. No talking about it behind his back or anything like that. Let's just get in front of him and speak about the issue. Verse 14, look at what Paul says. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This was a public sin in Peter that was having a public impact on the congregation and required a public rebuke. You imagine the scene in that Antioch church meeting. This was a kind of church discipline. And sometimes for the good of the church, today, we have to deal with publicly inappropriate conduct of church members in a public manner. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the good of the church, if members fall back from their faith and their convictions and they start living a life that is contrary to the gospel, well, they were publicly welcomed in and so they will be publicly set outside. And sometimes that requires church discipline where the matter has to be publicly dealt with. In verse 5, Paul said 
that he was working to preserve the truth of the gospel. Now here he's working to preserve the life that should flow from the gospel. This is how important it is to make sure that your manner of life reflects the gospel that you profess. We are not just called to evangelical belief, but we are called to evangelical lifestyles. So Paul realigns Peter first with this confrontation. Peter, you're out of line. You are saying, as a Jew, you're happy woman to live with the Gentiles, but then you're forcing the Gentiles to become Jews? What are you doing? That's not in step with the gospel. And after the confrontation in verses 15 to 19, we get Peter's explanation. And here in this explanation, we come to one of the clearest statements on what the gospel is all about in this letter and in the New Testament. So let's observe really carefully the text here. We'll be walking down through it very closely. It seems in verse 15 that Paul is still speaking to Peter and he says, look Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. But in verse 16 he says, but look what we are by birth, it doesn't really matter because we know a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here is the first occurrence of this word, justified, in Galatians. It's a very important word. One commentator has said the meaning of this word is central to the message of this letter. It is indeed central to Christianity itself. Nobody has understood Christianity who does not understand this word. So let's make sure we try to understand it. The word appears three times here in verse 16, justified, and once in verse 17, so Paul clearly wants us to focus on it. What does it mean to be justified? Justification in the New Testament is a legal term borrowed from the law courts. It is the exact opposite of condemnation. That might be helpful for you to think of it in that way. If a criminal is in court, standing before the judge, and has been proven to have done wrong, the judge will pronounce that criminal condemned, guilty, you must pay for your crime. But if a person is in a court, and they are pronounced by the judge not guilty, they are justified. In the right no longer under any condemnation, they are entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. That's really important. Entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. In the New Testament, this is the word justified used to describe someone who has been forgiven in Christ and counted righteous by God in union with Christ. I like to use the language of being made right with God. 
someone who is justified in Christ, they have no condemnation from God over them. They are declared not guilty. They are declared righteous. You've probably heard me say this, and others say it, justified, a nice way to think of it is just as if I never sinned, just as if I always obeyed. Now Paul makes three statements about justification in verse 16. His goal is to make it very clear that people are justified not by doing works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now it might be helpful to just reflect on that statement, works of the law, for a moment. Works of the law meant doing religious works, obeying God's commands. For the Jews it meant being circumcised. Obeying the clean laws. For us today, we can say it's like thinking you have to read your Bible a certain amount of times to be right with God, or pray so much to be right with God, or share your faith, or give so much money that if you do all those religious works, you'll be right with God. To the Jews, it was circumcision and keeping the clean laws. To us, it could be a variety of other things. Essentially, works of the law means doing any religious work that you will trust in to make you right with God. And so Paul makes three statements about justification to make sure that we know it's not based on doing religious works, but it's based on faith in Christ. He makes a general statement, a personal statement, and then a universal statement. First, the general statement. We know, this is verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Any person. It's general. doesn't matter if you're a Jew living under the law or a Gentile having been raised without the law. The law doesn't save you. After the general statement, Paul then makes a personal statement. He continues, so we also, remember he's talking to Peter, we who are born Jews under the law, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So Paul's saying, we as Jews, you Peter, me Paul, we've trusted in Jesus to be made right with God. We're not looking to the law and religious works to make us right with God. And after that personal statement comes the universal statement. By works of the law, at the end of verse 16, no one will be justified. This truth is not just true for some people, it's true for all people. We cannot by ourselves earn our way by doing good works into the good works of God. It has to be by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's why at the end of verse 21, Paul says, look, we don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ would have died for no purpose. Then let's move to verse 17. Now, you're going to really follow the flow of thought with me carefully, because on first reading, this is difficult to understand. Paul's still speaking to Peter. But if, after knowing all that, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul is thinking of Peter's example here. Peter. You're trusting in Christ for true cleansing, along with the Gentiles. And so being justified by Christ in that way, you can sit down and have full fellowship with the Gentiles. 
But then these conservative Judaizers come in, and they're looking at you, and they're thinking, oh, you're a sinner just like those Gentiles. So in your effort to be justified with Christ, they're looking at you and saying, oh, he's just a dirty sinner, he's with all the sin, he's just eating whatever he wants. Christ promoting sin. Paul's saying, those people are, are saying to you, your freedom in Christ is making it look like Jesus is promoting sin. Because your freedom in Christ means you can eat with the Gentiles, and they're looking at saying, that's sinful to eat with unclean Gentiles. And in verse 18, Paul says, well, that would be the case if I rebuilt that old system of the law that is no longer in force. Look at verse 18. If I rebuild what I tore down, I do prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul said, look, I'm sitting there eating with unclean Gentiles because in Christ the Jew and Gentile divisions are broken down. If I'm eating with the Gentiles and then I rebuild the law and start hoping in it again, then the law says, you're a sinner because you're eating with these unclean people. If I rebuild that whole system, then yeah, I'll be counted as a sinner. But, verse 19, Paul says, through the law, we die to the law. Now what does he mean there? The law required perfection. The law required atonement. The law demanded cleansing. And all of that was satisfied and fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Christ's death marked the end of the reign of the law and signaled the arrival of a new era in the history of salvation. As we'll see next week, Paul says we died with Christ to that old system. And now we live the life of freedom in Christ. Not just to live any way we want, but to live for Christ. So Paul's essentially saying, look, Peter, how can you rebuild that old system that brings condemnation? That doesn't save us as Jews, doesn't save them as Gentiles. There's only one way for all of us to be justified, by faith in Christ. If you're one minute saying you're justified by faith in Christ and it sets you free to eat with Gentiles, and then the next you say, well actually the law does apply, and so now I'm a sinner for eating with them, you're confusing everyone. You're falling back from the freedom you have in Christ. Peter, that is out of step and out of line with the gospel. So as you follow the logic from down from verse 15 down to verse 19, Paul is explaining, look, we're justified by faith in Christ, Jews and Gentiles. On the basis of our union in Christ, we can have fellowship together because the law has been fulfilled and satisfied and torn down by Christ. But if you live now justified in Christ and you rebuild that law, you're going to look like a sinner with that law rebuilt. But through that law that demanded death, Christ died in our place, took our curse, took our condemnation, so that we, as Jews, the Gentiles, were all free in Christ to have fellowship together around the table, no matter where we're from from, no matter what our background, no matter what, what our status is. So, let's just tie this around, because that's been quite dense for you. That's Peter's out-of-step conduct, his hypocrisy, and Paul's response. 
confrontation and explanation. Let's just lift up out of the passage now for a few moments and close things by asking what are the lessons we are to learn from this account being in our Bible? I have three. Number one, in light of this passage, we are called to embrace the truth of the gospel. Our greatest need is to be justified by faith in Christ. In verse 16, three times Paul says we are justified. That is, remember, pronounced not condemned, pronounced right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We believe in his person, his works, his accomplishments, the whole Christ person and work. Belief in Jesus, faith, receiving, resting in Jesus Christ alone makes you right with God. Nothing else needed. There's only one way to be made right with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Every one of us needs to receive and rest in the finished work of Christ to be made right with God. There is no way to be made right with God apart from receiving and resting in the finished work of Christ. We are called to embrace the truth of the gospel. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, you must be born again. You must receive Christ. You must repent of your sins and come to Christ so that you will be released from God's judgment and condemnation upon you and so that you can be set free and know God's pleasure resting on you. We must embrace the truth of the gospel. That's the first lesson from this passage. Second lesson. We, as embracers of the gospel, are at times called to defend the truth of the gospel. There are many today who would want to change the gospel, to undermine the gospel with their lives that do not reflect the gospel. We must be ready at times to take our stand to defend the gospel with gentleness and respect, but with tenacious humble courage. We must take church discipline seriously. We must take the public witness to the gospel seriously. We at times will be called to take our stand even when it's not popular. And when you feel the fear of the pressure group and you feel the temptation to hide your light under a bowl because you're worried about this pressure group and so you alter your behaviour, you've got to say, Lord, give me strength in this Give me courage. Give me wisdom. Help me not to be afraid, not to alter my behaviour, but to live out my convictions. Take your stand for Christ in this day when so many are bowing down. Take your stand in the strength of the Lord. Think of people like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Daniel who we're reflecting on in our Daniel series recently. Called to stand for the Lord in a day where it's unpopular to do so. God gives us the strength for that. Third lesson then from our text. First we're called to embrace the truth of the gospel. Second we're called at times to defend the truth of the gospel. Third we are called to live in line with the truth of the gospel. That is to bring all areas of our life under the umbrella of the gospel. We call this living our whole lives under the lordship of Christ. We don't just believe the gospel, we bring every part of our lives 
into line with the gospel, our thinking, our actions, even our attitudes, our attitudes to things like complaining, or gossip, money, how we use our free time, how we think about what we look at on the internet and on TV, what we spend our money on, how we go on our holidays, everything, you know, everything comes into line with the gospel. This is one of those truths that we could just spend another hour or so on this morning. But let me just demonstrate how the New Testament teaches not just gospel-shaped belief, but gospel-shaped living. One way to think of this is how we're called to forgive, to be forgiving as Christians. Listen to the words of Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ forgave you. So you're to think like, gospel. God forgives me all my sins, even though I've done inf an infinite amount of offences against God. Because my offences are infinite, of infinite measure because they are offending an infinite being. And God forgives me. And so the, the gospel says, right, let your life now align with that so that you become a forgiving person. And you will start to have conduct that lines up with the gospel. Or we're called to love one another. Listen to Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So how am I to love others? Well, I have to think, how has God loved me in Christ? He moved towards me when I was unlovely. He dealt gently with me. He took my sin seriously. But he dealt with it to save me. Now, that was love. Now, how do I love the way I have been loved so that my conduct reflects the gospel? We know how this gets applied in Ephesians 5 to husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. So that whole, our relationships, not just marriage, all of our relationships are to be shaped by the gospel. Here's a lovely one. Welcoming one another. Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Isn't that beautiful? And that would have been so applicable to the Galatian churches. To that conservative Jewish group who were not welcoming the Gentile believers. The gospel says, welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you. Think of God welcoming you. Now you go. Let your disposition be one of welcoming. And I love when I see our welcomers standing on the door, trying to give a friendly hello, handshake if people feel comfortable with it in these post-COVID days, and everything else. It's just, it's just that's an intentional thing we do. That's not just accidental. That's part of our time to do this. Welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you. We want to be a welcoming church. So that the manner of our life is lined up with and reflects the gospel. Now, we could apply that to many, many areas of life, and I hope you've got the gist. Francis Schaeffer spoke of two kinds of orthodoxy. Orthodox doctrine and orthodox community. If our culture is not reflecting the gospel here at Great Vic, we're not truly orthodox. Because as Paul demonstrates in this, passion, or this passage, true orthodoxy, upright living, Evangelical orthodoxy involves right belief and a life that aligns with that belief. 
Now, we will never do it perfectly. That's why we continue to come back to the Lord's table, to remember Christ in our own devotions. We remember and pay our debt so I don't have to live under the crushing weight of having to perform my way into God's goodness. I'm saved by grace through Christ, but I'm also called then to be shaped by the grace of Christ. So let's close with these reflections. Is your life in step with the truth of the gospel? Are there any areas of your life where you have fallen out of step with the gospel? Is there unforgiveness? Is there complaining attitude? Is there whatever? Search yourself. Ask yourself. Are there ways that I have to repent of a certain sin and just say, Lord, I want to come back into step. Think of the Calvin BB, the leader marching out. Think of the gospel is the leader and I want to line up and be in step. How in step is every area of your life with the gospel? Let's close reflecting on that. I'll pray and then what we're going to do is sing and prepare to gather around the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, those questing questions are searching. And we want to open our lives to you so that your spirit can indeed search us in this moment. Whether it's still in the habit of being angry and impatient, and that anger and impatience does not reflect your patience and your being slow to anger. If it's that that's gone out of line, then Help us, Lord, to confess and repent of that. Maybe it's just got into an attitude of grumbling that makes it look like you're a God that doesn't give us joy and contentment. Or if it's just fear of what people think. And so for a long time we've never spoken of the gospel to anyone because we're just so afraid of what people think of us. And again, Lord, forgive us. Maybe it's even just through the way we're committed to your work. We make it look as if the church isn't really a big deal in our lives. Lord, help us not just to profess right belief, but help us to recognize the importance of, of right living. We never hope in that right living for justification because we're justified by faith in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that now in Christ we're set free. To live not for ourselves but for you and to live a life that, that doesn't have to conform to some external law but a life that is free to, to just embody the gospel, to follow the law of Christ. And Lord, for anyone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus, I pray that in that first lesson we must embrace this gospel. We must embrace Christ to be saved. There's no other way to be, be made right with God. I pray that you would quicken them even in this moment and that they would cry out to Jesus and put their faith in him to be saved. And Lord, as we respond now by singing and gathering around the Lord's table where we remember our justification in Christ. I just pray that it should be a very special time as we are nourished again and have fellowship with the risen Christ together, remembering how in him 
We're all united as one. Thank you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to sing now, and then we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. Um, what we're doing in doing that is, as Jesus has commanded us as a church, we're going to eat bread and drink a cup together, which signifies the broken body of Christ for our sins. His shed blood to save us from our sins. So if you know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you're in good standing with your local church. You're welcome to share with us in that meal together. There is bread and wine at the back. If you were intending to share the Lord's Supper and you weren't sure what that was about, you can just nip back during this song if you are going to share the supper. Just nip back during the song, get the bread and the cup so you're ready for that. But what we're going to do now is just stand together, sing the first two verses of When I Survey. Allow this to help us to just ponder Christ. We'll stand together and after this piece of sit and I'll lead us as we break the bread and drink the cup together. Let's stand together as we respond. 